Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In northern Manhattan in 1841, the naturalist John James Audubon bought 14 acres of farmland on the banks of the Hudson River and built his family a home far from the crowded downtown streets. Audubon's country homestead is long gone, but his story launches Matthew Spady's The Neighborhood Manhattan Forgot, Audubon Park, and the families who shaped it. The book traces the complex path by which the woods and farmlands that enchanted Audubon became a multi-ethnic big city neighborhood and a historic district. I'm Robert Snyder, Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University. Today I'm talking with Matthew Spady, the author of The Neighborhood Manhattan Forgot. We hear thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks very much, and thanks very much for having me on. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Did you always live in Manhattan? No, no. I um, grew up in the southeast corner of Virginia um, in the 1950s and 60s, and I went to college there, first at William & Mary, VCU after that, and then I went to Cincinnati for graduate studies in music. Um, I was a performer for about 25 years, um, which brought me to Manhattan. And as happened with many performers, uh, after I was here for a while, I transitioned into a new career and moved into the corporate world. So I've been living in Manhattan since 1987, always in the neighborhood that we now call the Audubon Park Historic District. Could you describe Audubon Park for us? Where is it and what does it look like? Well, today's Audubon Park uh, is pretty much the footprint of the 19th century Audubon Park. It stretches from 155th to 158th streets west of Broadway. Um, in the 19th century, this was a suburban neighborhood uh, of about uh, 12 um, Italianate villas. In the 20th 20th century and the 21st century, it is an urban neighborhood comprising um, a number of Beaux-Arts apartment buildings, uh, the uh, Audubon Terrace 
a museum complex, and then some newer buildings, when I say newer, built in the uh, early 1920s into the 1930s. So it's very much a residential neighborhood. It has a very interesting feel to it just because of the way Riverside Drive uh, winds through it uh, for about three blocks there. And because being west of Broadway and with the river on the other side has a slight feeling of being almost a a cul-de-sac. And how does Audubon Park relate to the larger neighborhood of Washington Heights around it in Harlem to the south? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I sometimes think of Audubon Park as being a bridge between Harlem and Washington Heights. And when I say a bridge, I mean that historically the way it developed, originally it was, of course, on Harlem Heights. So it evolved uh, as the uh, settlers in Harlem moved north onto the heights. Um, Only in the uh, late 19th century did it really achieve its sort of distinct character as Washington Heights. And even then, the southern boundary of Washington Heights was very porous. So some people thought of it as far south as 145th Street, uh, even down to 135th in some newspaper articles you'd read. Um, But Now, the official boundary of Washington Heights is, of course, 155th Street. So we are the southern part, the southwestern corner of what is now officially considered Washington Heights. What got you interested in the history of Audubon Park? (laughs) Well, um, it began with just one question. Um, I had been living in the neighborhood for 11 years. I knew a little bit about its history that that was vaguely related to the Audubon family. John James Audubon had lived there and that sort of thing. I knew his uh, monument was up the street in Trinity Cemetery. But in 1997, my partner, Scott Robinson, and I um, signed a contract on an apartment at the Grinnell, which is a an apartment building, a co-op apartment building at Riverside Drive in 158th. And the day that we signed the contract, Scott just randomly said, I wonder who Grinnell was anyway, or what Grinnell was. Uh, This is very dangerous, actually. Um, We went down to the Historical Society, New York Historical Society, and a very kind librarian pointed us to a um, a biographical encyclopedia that had an entry on George Bird Grinnell. And in that entry, it mentioned his relationship to the Audubon family, and mentioned Audubon Park and described the boundaries. That was just sort of an initial kernel that sort of piqued my curiosity a bit as I began doing research and then became involved in historic districting effort for the neighborhood and uh, learned more about it. That sort of initial curiosity became an interest, which became a fascination and frankly, finally became a compulsion. And all of that led to uh, this book. Now, this book is a story of real estate and urbanization, but you chose to frame the narrative in the lives of two families, the Audubons and the Grinnells. Why? Uh, oh, excellent. Uh, ex- excellent observation. And, and uh, thanks for that, for that question. And I'll try to be brief, um, mainly because they were 
the primary property owners. First, the Audubons arrived in 1841, and they controlled the property until the early 1850s, when because of their financial difficulties, they began selling off portions. The Grinnell family didn't actually arrive until later in that decade, 1857. And that's when George Blake Grinnell, who was father of George Bird Grinnell, um, came and leased a house that was uh, owned by a man named Wellington Clapp. He leased it for three years. Um, and it was they were just sort of like any other family that moved there. They were merchant class, a fairly young, growing family. Um, they all tended actually to also be Episcopalians, or they went to the Audubon's church, the Church of the Intercession. So the Grinnells arrived then, and... Um, in 1860, they moved to a different house, but they still were renting. This time they were renting from the Audubons. However, in 1864, George Blake Grinnell bought that house and then proceeded to buy more and more property until by the time he died in 1893, he owned about two thirds of Audubon Park, which he left to his children, who then were really the um, people who made the plans that evolved into its final urbanization, the final steps towards urbanization. So it was those two families, really, who were the main ones in control. However, there were lots of other really fascinating people who moved in and out of the park during its uh, 50-year history. This is a story that's rich in ironies, because when we hear the name Audubon, we think of nature, right? right. And yet it is the name that marks a neighborhood in the biggest city in the country, right? And, and also the Audubons and the Grinnells had significant ambitions for their own real estate in upper Manhattan, but that didn't really work out for them. Why was that? Well, <laughs> Again, th- th- thanks for, for for those sort of like probing questions because it goes to the heart of the story. Um, the Audubons, when they moved there, really were just looking for a way to sustain their family the most economical way possible. And at the time, it was still beyond, well beyond the city limits, nine miles beyond the city limits, and was very rural. And so it was a farm, a working farm. The younger son, John Woodhouse Audubon, was in charge of all of the farming activities. He raised crops. He had animals on the farm, uh, lots of fowl and um, had cows. So it was, a, it was really sustenance living. However, um, as the decade, the 1840s, wore on and John James Audubon uh, became both physically and mentally incapable of participating any longer in the family business, it put more pressure on the two sons, Victor the Elder and John Woodhouse the Younger, to uh, move the family business onward. They were they were re uh, publishing versions of the uh, the small version of the Birds of America. They were working on the Quadrupeds of America as well as small versions of that. So they had a lot of work that they were doing, which pulled John away from his farming, which meant that that put more pressure on the family's economic situation. Uh, and so eventually, uh, by the time Audubon died, they really were in dire straits, and the only fungible asset they had was their land. And that's when they came up with this building scheme to divide the property, build some houses, 
lease those houses for steady income and see how they could go. But that really didn't work either because many of the people who moved there, the, these merchant class men and their families who moved there, wanted to buy their houses. They didn't want to lease them. And of course, once you've sold the property, uh, you no longer have that, that steady stream of income. Even with the, the houses they rented was problematic because people moved in and out very quickly. So they were constantly looking for new tenants and then they'd have to do improvements to satisfy the, the newest leaser. It was just very, very difficult. And so um, that's why that farm which was called Minnie's Land, by the way, which by the farm Minnie's Land evolved into the suburban Audubon Park. And then what, what's the origins of the name Minnie's Land? Well, Minnie's Land uh, was called that because of uh, Lucy Audubon, the uh, John James Audubon's wife, Lucy. Uh, her sons called her Minnie, which is a Scottish name for mother. They picked this up uh, when they were living in Scotland as they were concluding works on, uh, including concluding work on the birds of America. Um, and when Audubon bought these 14 acres in uh, 1841, September 1841, he registered them in Lucy's name. Now, part of that was really sentimental. She had really put up with quite a lot over the years while he was um, doing the, the birds of America, doing the research and doing the drawings and, and promoting them and canvassing for subscribers. Uh, she had really helped support him during those years with her activities as a teacher. And so part of this really was a gift to her. She finally had a home of her own after really wandering for a couple of decades. The other was really practical, and that was that if he registered the farm in her name, if he went bankrupt again, which had happened to him back in <laughs> around uh, 1819, the property would still be safe. It would be in her name. Interestingly enough, quite a few of the other men who moved into Audubon Park did exactly the same thing. So Wellington Clapp, uh, when he bought his house, registered it in his wife's name. When uh, George Blake Grinnell bought his property, he registered it in his wife's name, again, just uh, to protect it in case they went bankrupt. No, it sounds like economic insecurity shouted a neighborhood that looked quite stable from a distance. <laughs> that's a that's a good observation. It's very true. Um, the men who lived in Audubon Park, the ones who moved there originally, were the merchant class, and they all were um, cotton merchants. So, of course, at the start of the American Civil War, when the whole cotton market collapsed, quite a few of them went bankrupt, and they reinvented themselves during the course of the war as stockbrokers and uh, insurance men in various aspects of the financial markets, which, of course, also were prone to things like the Panic of 1873 or the Panic of, of 1893, um, which then shattered the economy and they would go bankrupt and they'd have to rebuild again. And so just seeing all of that, it's really fascinating that the park itself remained as stable as it did um, during those years uh, in, the, in the second half of the 19th century. A large part of it was because, again, these men had, had sheltered their property in a way by putting it in their wives' names. And they also had a tendency, when times got bad, to lease their houses and move somewhere else temporarily, sometimes even to another house 
in the park. So it was a very, very interesting and sort of fluid economy uh, in Audubon Park. What did Audubon's own home in the middle of this look like? Could you describe it for us? Well, Audubon's home began as a an Italianate villa. Um, it was uh, an English basement with two full stories on top of that and then a half story above. It was a, a very popular format in the uh, mid-19th century. And it was actually the same format that all of the villas in Audubon Park, that's how they all began, as some version of that. They all looked very similar. So you had this very um, uh, cohesive-looking landscape. Uh, the houses, all of them, including the Audubons, were on irregular-shaped lots, very large lots, um, plenty of trees, uh, winding roads among them, which is why it was quite uh, distinctive and set apart from Carmensville, which was to the east, which tended to be much more grid-like in its structure. But the park really, when, when I do walking tours of the, of the neighborhood, I always talk about how Audubon Park disrupted Manhattan's grid because mm-hmm. it had mm-hmm. this own, its own unique park-like um, mm-hmm. uh, pattern. Uh, as far as the Audubon's house itself, as I say, it was was those two stories on an English basement. In the basement were things like the laundry and all of the work areas. The first floor, the parlor floor, had a parlor, a dining room, library, pantry, Audubon study. And then above that were bedrooms and on the top floor, more bedrooms, both for servants and children and guests. Um, it was oriented uh, east-west. And so the front of it actually faced the river. Interestingly enough, it was down near the river. Most of the people uh, in who built in uh, northern Manhattan in those uh, earlier years built on the promontories. They built really high up so that they had fresh air, plenty of fresh air. Uh, they weren't um, uh, close to the river where they had to worry about miasmas. Um, and they also uh, had, had wonderful views in all directions. But the Audubons, partially because of the shape of their property, which was a big triangle, partially because they wanted real privacy, built as far away from um, the Kingsbridge Road and 10th Avenue, which is, of course, now Amsterdam, as possible. So that put them down by the river. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So as late as the 1880s, even the 1890s, Audubon Park was a neighborhood of elegant single-family homes. But then the subway arrived in 1904. What did that do to Audubon Park? It pretty much obliterated it, although not right away. Um, the Grinnells, uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, uh, owned most of the property in the park by 1893, had been very active in making sure that when the subway came north, there was going to be a station adjacent to Audubon Park. This was part of the 
uh, exit strategy, as I like to call it. The <laughs> other part was Riverside Drive. And what they were trying to do is just make sure that when the time came that they had to sell their property, it was going to be as valuable as possible. And so when the subway came, sure enough, there was a station at 157th, the same station which is there today, which sat, uh, the downtown station, sat in what had formerly been the Grinnell's Vegetable Garden. So if you ever <laughs> get out there at 157th, you can sort of think of that other layer of history. This was once a, a vegetable garden. Um, even then, though, they hung on to their property a bit longer. And, and a lot of this was because of George Bird Grinnell. Um, he had moved, of course, to Audubon Park in 1857 when he was about 11 years old. And um, he really lived there for the next half century. And to him, this was home. It was a sense of place and his sense of belonging there in Audubon Park. It was just like Audubon had used it as the um, basis for his travels. Grinnell used it as the basis for his. He went west every summer, but he still, Audubon Park was, was part of his being. And he actually wrote in a couple of letters that he really hoped that he would die before he had to move because mm. he could see that moving was on the horizon. Mm. Um, fortunately for us, he lived well beyond his Audubon Park years. He lived into the, uh, I think it was 1938 when he died. Um, and he and his wife um, moved from Audubon Park in 1908. So there were what 30 years after that, that, that he, he lived on. Um, but as, as I was saying, they, he tried to hold on to the land as long as he could. Eventually, though, it became really obvious that the land that they owned was not producing enough income to sustain owning it. The exact problem the Audubons had had 50 years earlier. And so they sold it all to developers in 1908. And within only a matter of three years, the entire area was covered with these beautiful Beaux-Arts apartment buildings. And of course, Huntington had been uh, acquiring land and building, building his museum complex. The newspaper, the New York Times, I think it was, or it might have been the Herald, one of them anyway, uh, did a nice little pun on this and called it Audubon Park's Rapid Transformation, which of course was in the wake of rapid transit. Mm -hmm. And what became of the name Audubon Park? It really sort of faded into obscurity. Um, first, um, Riverside Drive was built on a huge retaining wall, 40 feet high. And the portion where Audubon's house was and where his two sons' houses were was to the west on the river side of that. And all of this development I was just describing was on the eastern side. And so at first, the name Audubon Park shifted from being that whole neighborhood to just being the neighborhood on the western side of uh, Riverside Drive, the old Audubon houses. However, over time, um, those were becoming more and more decrepit because the owners had shifted from them being single-family houses to being multi-family uh, uh, rentals, and they really didn't get the care that they needed. Also, this path of Riverside Drive, which wound through Audubon Park, which had been, again, part of the Grinnell's exit strategy, and they had worked very hard to ensure that when uh, 
Riverside Drive came north, it would cross their property rather than go along the river, which was, of course, the logical path for Riverside Drive. Um, but the, the drive itself had lots of complaints um, because it narrowed at that point. And so drivers complained that they had to slow down. Cyclists complained about it as well. Pedestrians complained because the cars coming through um, didn't always watch out for pedestrians. And so they didn't feel it was particularly safe. So the, the city, over the course of uh, almost two decades, came up with other plans for a river, another Riverside Drive. And what they came up with was the viaduct, which exists today, which is why mm-hmm. we have two Riverside Drives between 155th and 162nd Street. But that second Riverside Drive really doomed the Audubon House because it was sitting down now in what was really just a gully. Mm-hmm. Um, Reginald Pelham Bolton, who lived on 158th Street, tried his best to save the house. He was an early preservationist, um, and he did his best to save it, working with people in the neighborhood, civic-minded people who wanted to, who realized the both the cultural and the historical and the architectural importance of the house, the exact same things that Landmark's Preservation Commission would look at today if they were judging whether whether to save it or not. Um, Eventually, however, a developer wanted to build an apartment house there, and so they were going to demolish it. But at the last minute, a man named Decker came forward. He had some money to move it. The city had donated some land at 162nd, where there's now a little park. They had donated that land where they could move the house. And so they did. They took it apart, moved it to this new location. Uh, This was in 1931. The plan was to raise funds and rebuild it as a, an Audubon Center and perhaps a, a home for the Audubon Society. However, funds being that this was, of course, the Great Depression, funds didn't materialize, and the paper trail really stops. We don't know really what happened, but the most logical uh, conclusion is that the house succumbed to the elements and the vandals and probably souvenir seekers. Actually, when you think of it, in 1932, maybe it uh, was used as some Hooverville shacks. Wow. So the the original structure is totally gone. And if people want to stand near where the original Audubon home stood, where should they go today? Go to the corner of Riverside Drive and 155th, which is actually, that's what the street signs will tell you, but it's actually Riverside and Riverside. Uh, 765 Riverside Drive. It's a very interesting apartment building that was completed in 1932. It has a bit of the look of a, uh, of a fortress because it has, um, it's a tall brick structure with some sort of turret-like uh, looking uh, things uh, going from the roof, um, and you stand right there, and that's where Audubon's house was, but 40 feet below where you're standing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when I do walking tours, I, I take people to the other side of the street, the southern side of Riverside Drive there, and encourage them to look over the parapet there, or the, the railing, and you can look down to the level where Trinity Cemetery is, and then turn around and look at 765, and that gives you a sense of, of how far down Audubon's house actually was compared to today's topography. You know, so looking back on it and reflecting on, the, on these years of great transition from the time Audubon arrived 
down into the 1920s. What was gained and what was lost in the transition from country to city in Upper Manhattan? That's an interesting question, and it's very, very personal to me um, in the sense that, you know, I mentioned I grew up in rural Virginia back in the 50s, and the neighborhood or the village, Chuckatuck, Virginia, where I grew up, has gone through a similar trajectory in the last half of the 20th century that Minnie's Land and Audubon Park did in the second half of the 19th century. That is, it is urbanized. So that areas where when I grew up were fields and forests are now housing developments and sort of commercial strips and that sort of thing. I mean, there's still, there is still farmland. There are still farms there, but compared to what it was 70 years ago, um, it's really very, very different. And I think that's the same in northern Manhattan, that it's different, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily better or worse. This is how cities evolve. Manhattan is an island. If it were going to grow, it had to go somewhere, and north was north and up were the two two ways that it could, mm-hmm. could go. Um, one of the nice things about living in a neighborhood like Audubon Park is being aware of those layers of history um, and, and, and the reminders of what was once there compared to what is now there. Um, yes. Could you say a little more about that? I think it's so true that you see this neighborhood in multiple layers and multiple dimensions. What do you get from that? Um, I, it's, it's interesting because as I was researching, I began to become more and more aware of this. I mean, part of it, I guess I was always aware of because, um, when I was growing up, that's how my parents talked about where we lived in these sort of layers of history, because my family had been there for a number of generations. And so I sort of apply that to other places that I live. Um, but I'll give you one really great example of one that I really love. Um, if you, and again, when I'm on walking tours, I point this out to people and they, it's really wonderful to watch their faces as they realize what they're looking at. But if you come Uh, down 156th Street or go up from Riverside Drive, come down from Broadway or up from Riverside Drive, you come to a spot on the southern side of the street where uh, just before you get to the Church of Our Lady, the Spanish church there, Mm -hmm. where there is a piece of land which has never been developed. And there's a there's a fence in front of it, so you you, you can't actually step on it from that direction. Um, but there's Manhattan schist there, mm-hmm. and one of the things I point out to people is just think for a moment. This is one spot where we know that Audubon actually set his foot. Nowhere mm-hmm. else in Audubon Park can you say that, but here we know because this has never been developed. But it's not even, not just that. This is how it looked. This was the topography people saw every day when they lived in Audubon Park in Minnie's Land. But going back even beyond that to the Lenape people who inhabited Manhattan before Europeans arrived, they hunted in this area. Mm-hmm. And so this was their topography, which has come forward to today pretty much as it was then. And, you know, we sort of walk by it. It's just part of our streetscape now. But when you think about it, that's one of those links 
that if you if you just stand and look at it and think about it a few minutes can really take us back into those layers of of the history that we have built upon. I was fascinated to read in your book how in the 1930s, you found evidence of different forms of exclusion in the southern part of Washington Heights and around Audubon Park with regard to German Jews and African Americans. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that figured in the character of the neighborhood. The um, I think one of the first things that really was interesting is is you know the neighborhood Audubon Park as it evolved from suburb to city was very Eurocentric, um, and you you look at the census records for example and you can see that there are a variety of um, homes or, or countries of origin and and you can see there's a there's a certain Jewish presence in. Audubon Park or the Audubon Park neighborhood um, in those apartment buildings from the time they were built, um, but not as large as the presence of the, the Jewish community that arrived during the 1930s fleeing mm-hmm. Nazi mm-hmm. Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, New York used to do uh, censuses on the fives. And so there was one for uh, 1855, 65, 75, and so on. <clears throat> Excuse me. They stopped doing that, unfortunately, in 1935. So we don't have a real record of the change in 35. But in the 1940 census, there is a, a column for where the person had lived five years earlier. And from that, you can see the number of people with. Um, German last names, and sometimes uh, names that I think I think it would be um, uh, accurate to say names that are associated with with um, German Ashkenazic Jewish families. You can see these names, and that they were in Germany five years earlier. But what's interesting is that if in the Audubon Park neighborhood, or what we now call that, uh, they weren't calling it that then, of course, um, there were not many of these families, only a handful, mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. Broadway in the uh, same blocks between 155th and 158th, there were several hundred. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason was that even though the apartments were large in the neighborhood on the west side of Broadway and really could have been split up very easily because the lots had maids rooms and second entrances, they were more expensive. Yep. So they were really sort of out of reach for families who were fleeing with possibly very little in the in the way of income, um, you also asked about the uh, African American families, and and I think that's also interesting to to trace um, because it wasn't until about the nineteen late nineteen fifties and early sixties that the apartment buildings that the owners of the apartment buildings began renting to African-American families. One of the most fascinating, of course, is the Grinnell, which from the early 1940s until 1960s was owned by Daddy Grace, the evangelist, the African-American evangelist, or actually he came from uh, uh, the Cape Verde Islands. He never thought of himself as being African, which is really a story all of its own. But of course, in America, we would have considered by uh, his skin color that he was African. But he did not rent any of the apartments in the Grinnell to African-Americans with one exception, and that was the authoress 
uh, uh, the playwright, author, um, actress, Alice Childress, who uh, rented an apartment at the Grinnell beginning in the early 1950s. But she was the only person of color who did. And I'll, I'll just say as a sort of side note there, that Alice Childress was, had very light skin um, and very lovely woman, very really brilliant woman. Um, and so I think maybe he, he made just that one exception for her, um, but otherwise he didn't. So it wasn't until after 1960 that the first African-American families um, and um, Hispanic families uh, began moving into the Grinnell and in other buildings in the neighborhood. You talk about the, the, the opening of River Terrace in 1961, the Riverside Edgecombe Neighborhood Association. How did these spur integration in the neighborhood? Uh, they, really, they were really important um, in, in doing that. And they're, they're actually people in the neighborhood. Uh, my, my neighbors, the Dubnows, were early members of RENA, the uh, uh, association, which in its early years, they really were trying to integrate buildings. And so people like the Dubnows and, and some of their acquaintances were testers. And they would, they would go out um, after a, um, an African family, African-American family had been turned down, they would apply for the same apartment. And then when they were allowed to rent the apartment, then they could legally require the landlord to rent to the African-American uh, family who had uh, attempted first, and so th this, they were, you know, they were very active in ensuring and in making this a um, an integrated neighborhood. Um, the same was true there at River Terrace. Was that 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 building was intended to be a sort of um, a flagship or a, a a place that could integrate, and then that would help integrate the building. And I think it's sort of sort of um, Timely to remember that uh, former Mayor David Dinkins, whose mm -hmm. obituary mm -hmm. was announced today, uh, his death was announced, uh, lived in that building. And he was a neighborhood leader. You actually write about this uh, in, in your wonderful book, uh, Crossing Broadway, that episode when the candy store operator was, was murdered. And... Um, people in the neighborhood, black and white, protested together and went to the police station and said, look, we want this to be a middle class, a, a, a family neighborhood where black and white live together peacefully. And we're actually doing that. We just need the cooperation of the city and city agencies and the police to help us move forward. Right, right, right. You know, from the seventies down into the into the nineties, there there was a great deal of crime. There was deterioration above all in the real estate in 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 Washington Heights. And although the area around Audubon Park was relatively safer than 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 other parts of the neighborhood, there was still a lot of problems with decay in the real estate. But since the nineteen nineties, it's become known as a site of gentrification. What happened? You know, in that thirty odd years, what what changed? I think there are a lot of things that changed, um, and and I think the, the, it was a matter of national trends rather than something that was unique to the neighborhood. Uh, I think one thing, as far as the Audubon Park neighborhood, again that area west of Broadway between 155th and 158th, is that even in its darkest days, people were 
united in this enclave in trying to make better lives for themselves and to to make their community better and safer. Um, and this also extended over to 158th Street, um, where um, in the 1950s, 60s, into the 70s, African-American families bought these single-family homes that had been turned into multifamily and SRO, uh, single-room occupancy houses, and converted them back to single-family uh, residences and really looked after their block. They not only brought the houses back, but they brought a certain kind of safety by looking after each other. And I think this was true uh, also in the in the neighborhood around the corner where all the apartment buildings are in the uh, current Audubon Park neighborhood, that this this sense of community was stronger than the crime elements that were uh, pervading all parts of society, all parts of New York. Um, so you had the economic uh, development in the in the 1990s, a, a, a upswing in in economics. So you had more people with jobs, fewer people on the streets. Um, and you also had uh, um, the real estate boom in on the Upper West Side pushed a lot of people north mm-hmm. and they began mm-hmm. looking at these apartments that maybe in the 1980s they wouldn't have looked at. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden mm-hmm. they realized, oh, there's this interesting neighborhood up here. And, oh, wow. Look at this unusual footprint and what glorious buildings these are. And, and all of that worked together to move the neighborhood to where it is now. Um, that doesn't mean that we have not had some of the the uh, less uh, positive parts of gentrification. Their gentrification is displacement, and there have been people who have been displaced. Although I think, again, talking to people in Reno, for example, they have seen less displacement in the area west of Broadway, mainly because of the number of co-op and condo buildings mm-hmm. and the fact that th- they were not uh, forced um, um, conversions. And so people have, have remained in apartments or they got really adequate payments uh, to buyouts that they could find somewhere else suitable. Now, you were part of the effort to have Audubon Park designated a historic district in 2009. What led you to get involved? Um, interestingly, it was my my interest in history, uh, which began, again, back with Scott's fatal question back in 1997, who was Grinnell. Um, around 2000, I was in the courtyard of the Grinnell, and there were a couple of people who came in, and they were looking around and sort of talking about the architecture. And I introduced myself, said I lived there, and told them a little bit about what I knew about the building's history. And they said, oh, well, that's really interesting because they were from the Historic Districts Council, and they had gotten um, communication from one of my neighbors, John Esmond, who lives at the uh, Riviera. He was interested in how we would go about historic districting or applying for it. And so they were beginning to just look at the neighborhood and assess it for themselves. They put me in touch with John. We worked together uh, on the um, request for evaluation. From that, I actually developed a website to sort of help promote that um, whole effort. And that website, in turn, then informed a lot of my research because people started finding it. 
uh, people, for example, whose ancestors had lived in Audubon Park, and they would write me and say, oh, I had a, a great-grandmother who lived in Audubon Park, and she actually wrote this little memory. You might be interested in reading it. And so it sort of worked both ways, that working in the historic districting, um, I did more research, but also actually just participating in it brought uh, research topics back to me or, or, or pieces of research back to me. To, to begin wrapping up, for those listeners who live far from the Audubon Park Historic District, what are the most important things, both positive and negative, that you learned from the history of this section of New York City? I think the most positive thing that I learned is that um, change um, and progress are just part of life. Um, that, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, seeing this same sort of pattern in the village where I grew up. The, we just, urbanization is something that happens and we, we move forward and that doesn't necessarily mean we've lost something, we've just replaced something. Um, and I think the, because of that, you also see this fluidity in the way people live their lives. Uh, one of the themes that has uh, gone through the entire history of the Audubon Park neighborhood is how there have always been new people who have moved in and have carried the ball forward. So that, for example, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, my neighbor Vivian Ducat moved into the neighborhood and revived a group, the Riverside Oval Association, that had begun back in the, in the late 1970s. And she... It was new blood, new interest, uh, and, and Vivian helped move this group forward and, and make it really active again. So that, that's just one example of that. As far as the negative is concerned, I think it's that sometimes in moving forward, we don't always look to the future. And so we might make choices, and this is either individual or family or community or city, that will... Um, have, a, have a, a negative effect on what's going to happen in the future. One would be, for example, the way the Audubon Park neighborhood was originally right attached to the river. You know, it was, it was very easy to get back and forth to the river and to recreation land. Um, as that was cut off, first by the Hudson River Railroad and then by Riverside Drive and then by the Henry Hudson Parkway, that meant that people didn't have as easy access to that. And so then the city has to come back uh, if they want a, a, a leisure area or place where people can relax, has to come back and redo things, which sometimes can cost more money than <laughs> earlier planning would have cost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's your next project? Well, you know, um, there's so much left over that didn't go into this book, particularly the Audubon family um, after... John James. Um, all, he had um, two sons who married each of them twice, and then he had 15 grandchildren. Um, and the grandchildren are really very interesting people. And so I've been thinking for a long time because of the, the number of stories that I couldn't fit into this a book because they didn't really apply to the trajectory of the urbanization of, of 
the area, um, would make a really nice book, possibly of essays on the Audubons after John James, or maybe the Audubons after Minnie's Land might be a better title. Well, we'll look forward to that. Matthew, thanks for being with us today for the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me.